You may go ahead and be seated. Pick up your Bibles that are sitting there next to you, and let me have you open them this morning to John's Gospel and to chapter 12. And we'll be doing our reading after a couple of words of introduction here. This morning we're going to take a break from our study through the Gospel of Mark. In fact, we're going to hit a bit of a a time warp here and jump ahead in the timeline, of course, of the the work and the life of Jesus as we we look at the events of Palm Sunday this morning, Um, specifically looking at these events that lead to the redemptive work of Christ and indeed are part of the redemptive work of Christ, but specifically leading to his death and resurrection at the end of this week. Today is Palm Sunday, obviously, so I'd like to take a look at the events and specifically at the main event of that day so long ago when Jesus, the King, the Son of David, came riding into Jerusalem to the brief but intense honor and celebration of the people in Jerusalem. This isn't Jesus' first time in Jerusalem. As we've been studying uh, Mark's gospel, we haven't yet come across Jesus um, coming into Jerusalem because of Mark's focus upon the particular events as we've seen so far in and around the Sea of Galilee and that time that he had uh, a large portion of his ministry up there in the northern part of Israel. Uh, This is not Jesus' first time in Jerusalem, but it will prove to be his last and his most important um, here before his crucifixion. In this event that we're going to look at today, Jesus, having completed his public ministry, most of it at least, having done everything that had been appointed to him to do, having proclaimed the kingdom of God throughout and even outside of the boundaries of Israel, having revealed God the Father through his own words and works, having revealed himself to be the divine Son of God through both teaching and words and powerful signs, he now comes into Jerusalem for the celebration of the Passover. He's come to a point where through his ministry and through the good deeds that he has done, Uh, that he is loved by many. He is worshipped as God by many, and he is hated by many, isn't he? Most notably, ironically, by the religious leaders of the day. Uh, The religious leaders of the Jewish people, the, the Pharisees and the Sadducees, the scribes, who have been looking so intense is their hatred of Jesus, they have been looking for an opportunity for some time now to put him to death. But they've been hindered uh, by circumstances and, of course, ultimately by the fact that what Jesus has referred to as his hour had not yet come. And recently, these religious leaders were becoming increasingly frustrated and increasingly. Uh, jealous, envious of Jesus, fearful really of Jesus and of his growing influence uh, 
and they have now um, issued really what amounted to a a formal warrant, we might say, for Jesus' arrest. In John eleven fifty seven, it talks about that. And now, on this day, all of these things are beginning to come together, to coalesce, to come to a, a climax as Jesus enters into Jerusalem for the Passover. The will of God for his son, the will of God for his people, and all things needful for Jesus to redeem his people will be accomplished in the next, over the next week. Today we want to consider the words of Scripture as they relate to us what is known as the triumphal entry of Jesus into Jerusalem. And it's with this event that the, the Passion Week begins, culminating, of course, on Friday in the crucifixion and the death and the burial of Jesus Christ, but then um, most wonderfully on that third day, the resurrection of Christ. So John's record of the triumphal entry is found in verses 12 through 19 of John chapter 12, where I've had you turn. It's quite short, Compared to Matthew and Mark and Luke, there are four verses on the entry into Jerusalem itself, and then there are four verses on the reactions of the various parties, the disciples and the crowds and the Pharisees. So we're going to sort of base ourselves, set up our base camp here in John chapter 12, but we will also be turning at a few points to Matthew chapter 21. So if you want to be ready to turn to Matthew 21. You can even turn there and put a finger or a bookmark or something. We'll be turning there uh, actually in just a moment. But first, let's read this section. I'm actually going to begin back in chapter 11 of John in verse 55 to set the context a little for you, and we'll read down through verse 19 of chapter 12. So beginning in John chapter 11, verse 55. This is God's word. Let us pay attention to it. Let us humble ourselves before it and thank God for it as we hear it. Now the Passover of the Jews was at hand, and many went up from the country to Jerusalem before the Passover to purify themselves. They were looking for Jesus and saying to one another as they stood in the temple, What do you think, that he will not come to the feast at all? Now the chief priests and the Pharisees had given orders that if anyone knew where he was, he should let them know, so that they might arrest him. Six days before the Passover, Jesus therefore came to Bethany, where Lazarus was, whom Jesus had raised from the dead. So they gave a dinner for him there. Martha served, and Lazarus was one of those reclining with him at table. Mary, therefore, took a pound of expensive ointment made from pure nard, and anointed the feet of Jesus and wiped his feet with her hair. The house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. But Judas Iscariot, one of his disciples, he who was about to betray him, said, Why was this ointment not sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor? He said this not because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief. And having charge of the money bag, he used to help himself to what was put into it. Jesus said, leave her alone so that she may keep it for the day of my burial. For the poor you always have with you, but you do not always have me. 
When the large crowd of the Jews learned that Jesus was there, they came, not only on account of him, but also to see Lazarus, whom he had raised from the dead. So the chief priests put plans, or made plans to put Lazarus to death as well, because on account of him, many of the Jews were going away and believing in Jesus. The next day, the large crowd that had come to the feast heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem. So they took branches of palm trees and went out to meet him, crying out, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the King of Israel. And Jesus found a young donkey and sat on it, just as it is written, Fear not, daughter of Zion, behold, your king is coming, sitting on a donkey's colt. His disciples did not understand these things at first, but when Jesus was glorified, then they remembered that these things had been written about him and had been done to him. The crowd that had been with him when he called Lazarus out of the tomb and raised him from the dead continued to bear witness. The reason why the crowd went to meet him was that they heard he had done this sign. So the Pharisees said to one another, You see that you are gaining nothing. Look, the whole world has gone after him. Let's pray. Our Father, we come to you this morning once again, Lord, thankful that you have chosen in your grace to give us your word. Your very words breathed out to us, recorded in the scriptures and given to us that we might know you better, that we might know ourselves better, that we might know Christ better, that we might know of the salvation that is freely offered and available through faith in your Son, Jesus. And as we look at these words this morning, we pray that you would um, cause us to rejoice in Christ and to worship him, uh, remembering what he has done uh, for us. And we pray this all in his name. Amen. So we're going to look at a few different things this morning, just three different things. The first that we're going to look at is, in this text, the honoring of a king. The honoring of a king. If you look at John's uh, record here, beginning in verse 12, in fact, I'm just going to read the first phrase there. It says, the next day, the large crowd that had come to the feast heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem. The large crowd that had come to the feast. Make note of them and then file that away. We will come back to that large crowd. And Now we will immediately take our first little foray back into Matthew chapter 21. So turn back there if you, and we'll be going back and forth a little bit with this. Verse 1 of chapter 21 in Matthew says, Now when they drew near to Jerusalem and came to Bethphage, to the Mount of Olives, then Jesus sent two disciples. They drew near to Jerusalem and came to Bethphage, to the Mount of Olives. To sort of set this up for you, Jesus and his disciples and a a large number of people along with them have just left the little town of Bethany uh, that is east of Jerusalem and they have started the brief two-mile journey uh, from Bethany over the Mount of Olives and descending from the Mount of Olives uh, down through the Kidron Valley and then back up on the other side and into Jerusalem. And that's where they began, from Bethany. But Jesus, of course, 
Uh, For him, this journey started before the events in Bethany. As far back as what we looked at recently, the time of the transfiguration in Mark's gospel, in Luke's gospel, in Matthew's gospel, and from as far away as Galilee, way up in the north, uh, and even north of that in Caesarea Philippi where Jesus had taken his disciples and, and even north of that a little bit to Mount Hermon where Jesus had taken Peter and James and John up on that mountain where he was transfigured uh, before them. Uh, as far away as up there, Jesus, we read in Luke 9.51, has set his face to go to Jerusalem. All of the other things uh, that he has been teaching, all of the other things that he has been doing are, are now sort of focused upon his journey to Jerusalem where he will be betrayed and suffer and be crucified and on the third day rise from the dead. Um, So he has set his face to go to Jerusalem. Again, Luke tells us, knowing that the days drew near for him to be taken up. This was his destination then from that point forward. We mentioned it in our study of Mark that from now on, this is where Jesus is headed. And if you were to look in the book of Luke, Luke's gospel at chapter 13, um, chapter 17, 18, 19, several verses there, it, it all records that Jesus is specifically, uh, purposefully heading towards Jerusalem. And that journey to Jerusalem came to an end on Palm Sunday. But we know, don't we, that Jesus' journey to this road from Bethany to Jerusalem began even before that. All through his life, from his birth to his childhood. Remember, he explained to his parents uh, when he was 12 years old, uh, do you not know that I must be about my father's business, he asked them. Jesus is on a prescribed course. We've talked about that. He is on a divine timeline that encompasses every detail of his life and ministry, where he goes, when he goes, when he doesn't go, what he says, what he doesn't say, what he does, what he doesn't do. Everything has been given to him, and he is on this specific uh, journey He said that I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. He came at the the sending of his Father for the good of those who trust him. And Peter adds that this very journey that Jesus is on in our text is according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, his Father. But we know, don't we, that Jesus' journey to this road between Bethany and Jerusalem began even before that. As God the Father and God the Son agreed in their eternal covenant in eternity past that the second person of the Trinity, the eternal Logos, would step into time and space and take on himself a human nature and humble himself in that nature even to the point of giving his life up to be crucified as a substitutionary sacrifice and to fully pay for the sins of all of those who would ever trust in him, would bear the wrath of God. A journey that on this Sunday morning is rapidly drawing now to its horrific 
yet glorious conclusion. And so Jesus has traveled from Galilee through Samaria into Judea to Jericho to Bethany and then left Bethany and went back out into the wilderness for a short time and now has returned to Bethany, that little village. Uh, And there was a feast given for him by Mary and Martha and Lazarus who was there whom Jesus had, remember, in recently in his most glorious miracle, raised from the dead. And that miracle resulted in, in honor being shown to Christ. He's being shown to Christ again by this uh, dinner that was given for him at the, at the home of a man named Simon there in Bethany. And it was there, uh, as we read, that Mary took a pound of very expensive Uh, perfumed ointment, and poured it out upon Jesus, upon his head, upon his feet, and which Jesus explained to the crowd was symbolically being done, whether Mary knew this or not, we don't know, but was symbolically being done in preparation for his burial because of his upcoming death. According to John 12, Verse 9, a large crowd of Jews showed up to see Jesus and to see Lazarus, whom Jesus had raised from the dead. And that crowd, that is the group then, this is the they of Matthew 21, 1. Jesus, his disciples, and this crowd of Jews, many of whom, John said, believed in Jesus because of what Jesus had done, It is those who come down now the Mount of Olives with Jesus toward the gate into Jerusalem on this day. As they head toward Jerusalem, we read that the interest in Christ, the honor being shown to Christ, now is going to reach a fever pitch. All of the teachings, all of the signs, all of the miracles that Jesus gave and did concerning the kingdom of God and about himself bringing that kingdom and being the king of that kingdom, being the son of God, doing the will of God. All of these things are coalescing in the the minds and the hearts of the people. All of their understanding, which as we've seen is really a misunderstanding, uh, about the Messiah, all of that is coming together. The crowds come to Jerusalem from all over Israel for the Passover, including a large group from Galilee where Jesus has been doing all of these things. And as the news of of this great miracle of him raising Lazarus from the dead continues to spread, as Jesus and this growing group of people now come from Bethany down the road towards Jerusalem, and of course as the continuing plan of God to bring salvation through the death and the resurrection of his son, moves inexorably, unstoppably forward. We see these events that take place. Now turn back to John 12, if you haven't already, and see the the acclaim that is given to Christ in the honoring of the king. We're going to see a few different things. The first thing is that we want to see here is two crowds 
that are there. Two crowds. We don't often pick this out. Let's see if we can see it here. Uh, Look at John chapter 12 and verses 17 and 18. He says, The crowd that had been with him when he called Lazarus out of the tomb and raised him from the dead continued to bear witness. The reason why the crowd went to meet him was that they heard that he had done this sign. Now, it's not perhaps obvious here on the, on the surface of this, but there are two different crowds being talked about here. One that is with Jesus, following him. One that is in the, the city of Jerusalem that knows about him. Verse 17 is the crowd that we've already looked at. With Jesus, from Bethany, uh, at this feast, that have been there, that have uh, seen Lazarus and have uh, followed Jesus and the disciples as they leave and come toward Jerusalem. Verse 18 says the reason why the crowd went to meet him, that's a different crowd. This is the crowd that John starts with in verse 12 when he, taught, when he says the next day the large crowd that had come to the feast heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem. So there are those in Bethany who are with Jesus, and there are those who are in Jerusalem who heard that Jesus is coming with that crowd to Jerusalem. A picture of the event. Jesus now coming down the Mount of Olives, coming down the path, the road there, through the, through the valley uh, with a crowd, exuberant crowd, because of what they've seen, because of what they have heard. That they continue to bear witness, John says. They can't stop talking about what they have seen, about what they have heard, what they have most recently here celebrated. They can't stop talking about what they've seen and heard. We should be the same way, shouldn't we? When we read this, when we realize this, when we remind ourselves of what Christ has done for our salvation, what he has done to bring glory to his Father in heaven, we should be the same way. We should not be able to stop talking about this. Then there's another crowd, a crowd coming out of Jerusalem to meet Jesus because they have heard and they want to see. They want to see Jesus. They want to see Lazarus who was, who was with them. Verse 19 says that when the large crowd of the Jews learned that Jesus was there, they came out not only on account of him, but also to see Lazarus, whom he had raised from the dead. And so you have a group coming out. You have a group with Jesus coming in. They meet up together. Very, a very typical picture of other triumphal entries, of earthly kings. After a battle, after a war, the king would return in triumph with his, with his entourage, with the spoils of war, and the city would hear of it. The watchmen on the towers would say, the king is coming, and the tr- crowd would be uh, very excited, and they would rush out to meet the king, and then when they met him, they would follow him back as a huge crowd uh, rejoicing in what uh, he had done, the, the victory that he had that he had encountered. And that's exactly what's happening here. Jesus is being treated as a returning, victorious warrior king. Matthew 21.9 and Mark 11.9 say that the crowds that went before him and the crowds that followed him rejoice. This is a procession of great honor for Jesus. So two crowds. 
But why are they heaping this honor upon Jesus? Why are they acting this way towards Jesus? As I said, he'd been to Jerusalem before. What's going on here? Well, there are two reasons. I've seen two crowds. Now we'll see two reasons. The first is a responsive reason, and this is really the reason that that John focuses on. In John 12, 18, John writes that the reason why the crowd went to meet him was that they had heard that he had done this sign. So John mentions here, ties this to the miracle of raising Lazarus, that that's what's generated the, the excitement here. Luke adds that the whole multitude of his disciples began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice for all of the mighty works that they had seen. All of the things that Jesus has done, all of the news, all of these people in Jerusalem for, for the Passover talk. And everyone who comes is bringing a different story of what Jesus has done, what they've seen, what they've heard. So that's the first reason is this response to, to what Jesus has been doing. And a second reason then arises out of that, the great honor that is given to Jesus here arises out of all of it, and it is a prophetic reason. The people are putting all of this together, and they're coming to a very crucial conclusion, and that conclusion is the same conclusion that Peter had come to. Of course, Peter's conclusion had been given to him by God the Father, but the conclusion is the same that Jesus is the Messiah, that he is the Christ, the anointed one, the long-awaited one that the people had been waiting for for hundreds of years. This entry is, in the minds of the people, a triumphal one because the people see Jesus as the Messiah, as that promised God-anointed warrior king from the line of David who will bring the nation back to its prominence. That's their understanding. We'll see in a moment a quotation from Zechariah 9, and you won't have to turn there for that. But the context of the quotation that we're going to look at in a moment is that of the exalted warrior king coming and destroying the enemies of God's people, putting an end to war. In Zechariah 9.10, Zechariah writes, I will cut off the chariot from Ephraim and the war horse from Jerusalem, and the battle bow shall be cut off. It will be done. The, the elements of war, the utensils of war, will no longer be needed. That's the second reason, is this prophetic one. So there's a a reactive uh, reason, a a responsive reason, and a prophetic reason. And that leads the two crowds with their two actions, or their two reasons lead to two actions. The first is a physical action. The disciples start it when they bring this donkey that we'll talk about in a little bit as well, uh, that Jesus has asked them to go into a nearby town and to bring to him, When they bring it, the disciples, Matthew tells us, spreads their cloaks on the donkey as a sort of makeshift saddle to make it more comfortable for Jesus to ride. Look, in fact, back at uh, Matthew 21, look at verse 7. 
It says that they brought the donkey and the colt and put on them their cloaks and he sat on them. And the them refers to the cloaks, not to both donkeys. He couldn't ride both donkeys, but he sets on the the cloaks that they have uh, brought for him. And then the crowd follows suit in a way, but they put their garments, we read, um, in verse 8 of Matthew 21, most of the crowds spread their cloaks on the road. So it's something similar, uh, but they spread their cloaks on the road in the path of the coming king. Indeed, that was an action that was reserved for, for high royalty, a sort of covering the ground so that the, the coming king, so exalted, doesn't have to, as he comes into the city, ride on the dirt. He rides on the cloaks of the people. A sort of makeshift red carpet, if you will. Something similar uh, to that was done for the Old Testament, uh, in the Old Testament for King Jehu. Second uh, Kings 9.13 says, Then in haste, every man of them took his garment and put it under him on the bare steps, and they blew the trumpet and proclaimed, Jehu is king. Same kind of idea. Here they use not just their clothing, but we read that they cut palm branches and wave them and lay them down as well. We call it Palm Sunday because of that. And the use of palm branches... Uh, from palm trees, the fronds from palm trees, goes back to the Old Testament, to the, the Feast of Tabernacles, the Feast of, of Booths that's described in Leviticus 23, and the use of what was called the lulav, which was a palm branch, um, along with myrtle branches and willow branches. These things in the, on the, the festival, the, the Feast of Tabernacles, would be shaken as an expression of joy. The palm branches themselves were a picture then of joy, a token of joy, a token of victory, a token of of triumph, particularly the joy of triumph. And they came to to take on the the meaning or a very nationalistic uh, meaning. And it's the feeling that, that everything is going to be better from now on. And that's the sentiment of the people this day. As Jesus rides into town and the people celebrate the coming of the Messiah. That's the first action of the two actions. The second one is vocal. We know that when the shouting of praise. The crowd begins to shout as Jesus rides in, as all of this begins to to come together. It's interesting that, that each of the gospel writers, as they, they record this, each draws something different from the crowd's uh, shoutings, but all on the same glorious theme. Matthew says that they shouted, Hosanna to the Son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. Mark records all of that and then adds, Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. Luke says, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, peace in heaven and glory in the highest. And here in John 12, 13, we read that they cried out, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the King of Israel. Did you notice a common phrase in there, in all of those? Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. We sing it. On Palm Sunday, it's taken 
by the way, from Psalm 118, which is part of a portion of the Psalter that's known as the Hallel, the book of, of praise. Uh, they were songs, psalms that were sung as part of certain feasts, like the Passover. I'm going to read to you a little bit. This is what I was talking about, about our Old Testament reading. Listen to this uh, portion from Psalm 118, which was the la- is the last of the Hallel Psalms. It says, Open to me the gates of righteousness, that I may enter through them and give thanks to the Lord. This is the gate of the Lord. The righteous shall enter through it. I thank you that you have answered me and have become my salvation. The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This is the Lord's doing. It is marvelous in our eyes. This is the day that the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. Save us, we pray, O Lord. O Lord, we pray, give us success. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. We bless you from the house of the Lord. That's what they shout. That last psalm of the Hallel, praising God. And they add to these statements, uh, statements about the son of David. Because they're now celebrating that this one who has come is the son of David, the king who was promised to come. And the crowd say, Hosanna, from Psalm 118.25. Hosanna, save us. Save us, God. And this is indeed then a triumphal entry, a kingly procession. And Jesus is being honored by the people here as a king, as the king uh, of David, the king in the line of David, the Messiah. By the time they arrive in Jerusalem, this, this whole city that, again, is bursting at the seams from all of the people who come for the celebration of the Passover. They are all stirred up. Typically, uh, historians tell us there were twenty to 30,000 people living in Jerusalem, and during this time it swelled by perhaps another 150,000 of people coming to celebrate this, this feast. And the city, we read, is stirred up, and the people are saying, who is this? But by their actions, they answer the question, who is this? So we see the honoring of a king first. Secondly, we see the correcting of a crowd. The correcting of the crowd. Because as they proclaim this, as they do this, as they throw their cloaks on the road, and as they say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, it's interesting that Jesus does not disregard their acclaim. He doesn't refuse it. In fact, he alone is worthy of it. But, of course, we've seen this Earlier, we know that though the people have the title right, Jesus is the Messiah. He is the one who comes in the name of the Lord. But they have the purpose wrong. If, if they were celebrating the idea that everything is going to be better for them from now on, they are sorely mistaken. So wrong is their understanding of what Jesus has come to do that as Jesus comes over the, the crest and the city is seen below, uh, we read in Luke 19 that Jesus weeps over Jerusalem. 
as he sees, as it were, their, their future, the future of the city of David. He weeps for them. But they were expecting that, that because they, they expected the Messiah uh, to come, they were expecting him to come as a physical Messiah, that he would throw off the oppression of the Roman Empire that was enslaving them. We've talked about this before as we've been looking at Mark, that they were expecting the Messiah to be a political figure, a a royal figure, even a military figure. And so Jesus, while he accepts the praise, he corrects the crowd. He tweaks their understanding. He overrides it. Yes, he is a king. Yes, he is the Messiah. He is the anointed one. But he demonstrates something to them about the kind of king that he really is and the kingdom that he brings. And it's not one that they expect. And it will not come the way that they expect. We've said that this is a a picture of or, or modeled on the triumphal entries of a king coming back from uh, war, from battle. And such a king that would do this, and such a king as the people were expecting, would normally ride in grand and glorious procession on a magnificent war horse, a steed of great size and impressiveness, demonstrating the, the power and the victory and the imposing nature of this king who is being praised as he comes into town. But what does Jesus do? John says in verse 14 that he found a young donkey and he sat on that for his ride into Jerusalem. The other gospel writers give the details of this. You know, Jesus, who is always aware perfectly of who he is, of what he's come to do, he wants the people to know that too. So he goes out of his way to put himself in the place of fulfilling another prophecy. And to do that, he sends two disciples into a village, the village of Bethphage, which is just off the road that they are are traveling on, and he gives them directions for getting a mount for Jesus to ride into Jerusalem, a young, unbroken donkey colt. He divinely uh, tells them how things will play out and how they are to respond over in Matthew uh, chapter 21 in verses 2 and 3. He says, go into the village in front of you and immediately you will find a donkey tied and a colt with her. Untie them and bring them to me. If anyone says anything to you, you shall say, the Lord needs them and he will send them at once. And it happens exactly as he says. They go to get the donkey. Someone says something. They, they tell them what Jesus had said, and the person sends it along. And they bring this donkey to Jesus. And Matthew records that it is, that is not just how it happens, but that there is a reason for it. And that is to fulfill prophecy. Verse 4 says that. This took place in Matthew 21.4 to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet. What prophet? Zechariah. Here's the quote. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout in triumph, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. He is just and endowed with salvation, humble and mounted on a donkey, even on a colt, 
the foal of a donkey. See, that's why Jesus sends them to get this donkey colt. That's why Jesus does it this way, to fulfill this prophecy. The prophecy that the king of Jerusalem, the king over the kingdom of David, the promised son of David who will rule his people forever, the one who is coming with salvation will come this way. He will come this way as as a sign. And that the response to that is to be great rejoicing, a shout in triumph. But the picture of the triumphal entry of the king of Israel comes with that contradictory image of the king being humble. The king riding on a humble donkey. A donkey that was not the mount of a warrior, but of a peaceful man. A humble man, a priest, a prophet. And that is how Jesus comes. Purposefully, because the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve. The true Messiah of God comes humbly. Not what they were expecting, but what God intended. The people who gathered and and who appear before Jesus, waving branches and laying them in the paths before him along with their coats and who praise them with the praise intended for the Messiah, they were expecting something different. They were expecting that earthly national Messiah, one who would lead them in throwing off the yoke of the Roman oppression. They expected a man of war like David. The disciples, remember, even after the, the resurrection, When Jesus is preparing to be ascended into heaven, they asked him, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? They still weren't there yet. Perhaps also the people were expecting a deliverer like Moses. After all, this is the Passover that they're getting ready to celebrate. When God had delivered his people from bondage by mighty acts through Moses. The people on this day were expecting and saw Jesus as one who would bring peace from their political situation. But beloved, we know, if you don't know, know, if you know, be reminded that Jesus came about to bring a different kind of peace. To bring peace with God and to give the peace of God. Jesus was, is indeed the Prince of Peace. But that peace is gained through his humble obedience, even to death, even death on a cross. But most in that crowd didn't see that. They didn't see, as we will see Jesus saying, they did not know the things that make for their peace. The kind of king that they were expecting was not the kind of king that Jesus was. Isn't that the same today? People see in Jesus those who who will name the name of Christ, those, you see them on TV very often, uh, those who name Christ, see in Christ all sorts of things. You see it when you talk to people in the grocery store, perhaps when you talk to your own family. They see all sorts of things in Jesus, but in doing so, they very often miss the real reason that he came the reason that he died. 
as the way, the truth, the life, the only means of peace with God, the only means of forgiveness for sins. That's why Jesus came, not to give you a better marriage, not to give you kids that won't go be on drugs. He came to deal with sin. Jesus, by by choosing to fulfill the prophecy of Zechariah 9, by riding a donkey while all were proclaiming him king, was jarring to them. But it was perfectly biblical. It was precisely messianic thing to do. Also, before we move on, we might note this too about the triumphal entry of Jesus. That when Jesus comes into Jerusalem... He knows, of course, that that people are going to receive him this way. But do you think he knew what was going to happen the next day and the next day and Friday? Do you think he knew that? Of course he did. And yet, how does he come into Jerusalem? Does he go in through the, the back way? Does he sneak in under the cover of night? No. Jesus comes into Jerusalem, the place where he knows that the religious authorities are waiting and just chomping at the bit to put him to death and will do it. He comes into Jerusalem willingly, openly, conspicuously to the shout of the adoration of the people. He gives himself into their hands, knowing that all of these things must take place to fulfill the prophecies, to fulfill his mission. So we've seen the honoring of the king. We've seen the correcting of a crowd. Finally, we see a reflection on the event. Four different responses to this momentous event. First is the response of the disciples. (laughs) Nothing shocking here. Verse 16 says, His disciples did not understand these things at first. But when Jesus was glorified, then they remembered that these things had been written about him and had been done to him. They saw these things. They participated in these things. But they still didn't connect the dots. They still didn't make the connection between Jesus' actions and the truth of the kingdom that he came to establish. They didn't fully understand what Jesus was doing by calling for a donkey and riding it into Jerusalem. Now we have the connections made for us in the Bible, but they didn't. The crowd, and even to a degree the disciples, were rejoicing in Christ fulfilling certain aspects of the Messiah's actions, but Jesus, by what he did, self-consciously chose to fulfill another set of prophecies that the disciples didn't think of, didn't get, and wouldn't get, and probably couldn't have grasped until Jesus rose from the dead. In his death, we see the humility of riding on a donkey brought to its fullest expression, his obedience to death, even death on a cross. Though they didn't understand all these things until later, Let us not miss them this morning. Jesus conquered his enemies. 
And he gave us victory over the same enemy by humbly submitting himself to death. He brought peace with God by suffering at the hands of sinners, but ultimately by suffering the wrath of God. Christ's path to glory, as we've been seeing in Mark, was through suffering, as ours is through his suffering. The second response is the response of the crowd. Verse 17 says, The crowd that had been with him when he called Lazarus out of the tomb and raised him from the dead continued to bear witness. They had seen these things. And John says that they continued to bear witness. And not only of Jesus raising Lazarus from the dead, but later of his own rising from the dead. They bore bore witness to that. Beloved, let us bear witness to that. Let us be all the more diligent to continue to bear witness. Not to ourselves, not to our lives, not to our testimony, but to the life and the death of Jesus Christ. Let us bear witness every day to the King and to His kingdom by our lives, by our words. There's also a response, thirdly, of the Pharisees. Verse 19 says that the Pharisees said to one another, You see that you are gaining nothing. Look, the, whole, the world has gone after him. Let this give us hope as well, beloved, as we continue to bear witness to Christ the King. Despite their, the Pharisees' best efforts, the people have embraced Christ. The light has come into the world, the darkness has not overcome it, nor shall it. Oh yes, the Pharisees will succeed by Friday in turning the city and these people against Jesus through lies and through betrayal. In fact, by Friday evening, these people will not be shouting, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, but the same city will be shouting, crucify him. Let his blood be on us and on our children. And by Friday evening, this one proclaimed, as king will lie dead in a borrowed grave outside the city of Jerusalem. But by that very act, we know that the victory of Christ is complete. By the act... By that act, the very words of the Pharisees here will become hauntingly prophetic. Look, the world has gone after him. Now the gospel has gone to all the world. Finally, there's a response of us. Each one of us respond to this. As we look at this, what do we see, brothers and sisters? We see the Lord God making good on his promise to redeem his people. We see Christ being faithful to the task that God the Father has given to him. Jesus isn't fooled by the adulation of the crowd. It is appropriate. He is the Messiah. He is the branch of Jesse, the branch of David, the Davidic ruler, the king of the kingdom of God. We see the creator and the king of the universe, the sovereign God who is in need of nothing and gives life to all. We see him humbling himself and coming to this people and into this town on a donkey, knowing that he will be put to death. But know that the next week of Jesus' life, the last week of Jesus' life, 
consists of more and more humility as he becomes obedient to death, even death on a cross. One final note. This triumphal entry also invites our attention to the future triumphal entry. As Jesus rode into Jerusalem on the first Palm Sunday, what was to the disciples and the crowd a victorious procession was for Jesus the beginning of a death march. He knew it. He said, for this very hour, I have come into this world. But, beloved, there is to be another entry. Not in humility, but then he will come in pomp and glory such as no earthly king could ever envision. The first entry was on a borrowed donkey. The picture we have of the next is this. And I will close with this picture that we have. John, again, writing later, said, Then I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse. The one sitting on it is called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems. And he has a name written that no one knows but himself. He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood, and the name by which he is called is the Word of God. And the armies of heaven, arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. From his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. On his robe and on his thigh he has a name written. King of kings and Lord of lords. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this time in your word. We thank you, Lord, for what Christ has done. Lord, we thank you even for that that glorious future that we just read about. But we know that, that for that we must wait. We know that as we read and study your word, that before that glory, that there must be humiliation. There must be the bruising of his heel, even as by it he was to crush the serpent's head. But we thank you that he has done that. We thank you that there will be a consummation because there was a cross. And Lord, we pray that you would help us as we seek to understand and as we do, Lord, to glorify our Lord Jesus Christ, who is the King of kings, who is the Lord of lords, who is the Savior of our souls. And we thank you for him. In Jesus' name, amen.